Hello, my name is Stephanie Crean. I'm a writer, a video artist, and a curator. Hey there, I'm Mark Ruiz Wilson. Welcome to episode number four of Into This, the podcast where I explore contemporary art through conversations with artists, curators, writers, collectors, students, and more. Stephanie Crean is a Montreal-based multidisciplinary artist. Her artistic practice is composed by the combination of video making and writing. She's also one of the two directors of the curatorial project CK2. In this conversation, Stephanie talks about her experiences as a very active member of the artistic community in Montreal. I really enjoyed my conversation with her and I hope that you do as well. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Into This. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me. For sure. So anybody in your family is an artist? Um, ish. Ish. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my my uncle Andrew is a musician, so right. yeah. But yeah. I, that's that's pretty much uh, the only degree. My, my brother's really into writing and drawing. He's like an incredible writer. There are no uh, people that are, have specifically studied fine arts or visual arts in my family. family. Okay. Yeah. But you studied art yeah, already in Yeah, I, I studied fine arts in, at Dawson College. Right. And do you remember when did you decide to go into arts? I guess it was in grade 11. Um, by that point, hated high school as most people at that age do. But I had a, a couple of professors that really changed my life. And one of them was my art teacher, Miss Campbell. I was thinking about going into arts and science at Marianopolis just on the basis of the fact that I had high grades in math and science, and it just seemed the natural progression because I, you know, demonstrated capacities in those. But then with her help and encouragement, you know, along with encouragement of friends, I was like, I decided to change paths completely. For yeah. sure. I mean, I, I'm, I'm always interested in this because when you don't know that something exists, it's mm -hmm. hard for you to decide to go into that, right? Right. So there must be some sort of like well, entrance mean, to it. When I was four, I knew I was going to be an artist. Oh, really? And I think I had everything together best when I was four. I knew I wasn't going to have kids. I was going to be an artist. Those are two things that I have wavered on, but now I know are two constants in my life. And I would draw all the time, all the time, all the time. Um, my dad was big on showing me, you know, art books. They'd be all around the house, It'd be like me tiny little me pouring over photos by Giorgio O'Keefe. I really liked Picasso. But for a while, like uh, from, I guess, the age of like nine to 16, I sort of put that aside because mm -hmm. you're not, you know, obviously you're not taught in elementary school that being an artist is a feasible, yes. cool thing for you to do. Or, or that you can actually have a, a life doing yeah, that. Exactly. It's, right. it's more considered a hobby or something like exactly. that. It's like gym class. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so you go to Dawson. Yeah. And there you start to meet people yeah. that are more involved in the fine arts yeah. world. And that's um, where I met some of my closest friends. I met Jess, who I work with on CK2 yeah. at Dawson. I was an asshole. <laughs> it was like just the worst. <laughs> But I got to meet all these really great people and like think about art in this really groundbreakingly different way for me. Um, so, yeah, it was really important. Right. And what was the uh, main art form that you were practicing back then? By the end of Dawson, I decided that I was going to work in video. Yeah. I think I made two video pieces during my time at Dawson. Both of them would be 
considered from the video art point of view as a music video because yeah. it was edited to music just like a music video and I later found out that I wasn't supposed to do that even though oh. I really liked doing that <laughs> um, but before that it was drawing but I had a moment in Dawson it was during an art history class and Nelson Henricks came in, who's a video artist and a part-time professor at Concordia in the Intermediate Cyber Arts program, which I later studied in with someone else. I think it was Bill Vorn, but I, I can't remember because I was really fixated on Nelson. And he was like, we're from Intermediate Cyber Arts, and this is what we do. <laughs> they, they showed their work, and they were like, you can do this. This is a yeah. thing that you can do. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, that's what I want. And that was after you started making your own videos, yeah? Um, I can't, I think they might have been like in tandem or around the same right. time. Okay. I, you know, there were also people in my life at that time who were making video work who introduced me to it. Yeah. And then so from there, that's when you decide that you're going to Concordia. Mm -hmm. And how long did that take? Three years. I and was a full-time student. And how was that experience? I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah. I, uh, you know, I got to have... Nelson as a prof, which was super great, and I got to be scared. Um, in Dawson, I was not afraid of showing work. I was not afraid of, um, you know, not doing my best or, like, not trying to, I don't know, to make work that's, like, challenging or to the best of my abilities. Or I was afraid of that, I guess. And then in Concordia, I guess by nature of the way IMCA was at the time, a lot of my peers were people that were quite a few years older than me who had been in other programs before and decided to switch or they just like they really had a handle on what they were doing. They really had a handle on what their artistic vision was and um, I had no idea what I was doing. I really had to, you know, my learning curve kind of went really fast and you know, that doesn't mean that like my work was really great but it means that no. I was trying a lot harder. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I've heard that from other artists that you get to art school and you feel like you know nothing. Yeah. And then you pick up. Right. But I think that the difference was is that I went from thinking that I did know everything oh, right. in Dawson mm. to realizing that that was not the case at all, you know, by just working alongside people who demonstrated that I did not know much of, of anything. And um, so it was kind of backwards. But I guess but, that yeah. pushes you to also mm -hmm, continue to you know learn and stuff. Yeah it, was, yeah, it was super great, and I think it was really really important for um, my artistic practice and you know things in terms of like um, discipline. Like I remember the the first year, no, just my first semester at my first video art class, I would just self sabotage. I would never export the video properly, and every time yeah. I would show a video, it would be like the end of the world. I just I had to rethink absolutely everything. Um, I guess that's an example or what it was like, how everything had to be redone and I had to reallot different time slots for everything. So, what are the options for newly graduates from art school? Well, you can pursue an MFA or a DA, that is a Master's of Fine Arts or a Doctorate in Arts. Some artists get offers to be represented by commercial galleries even before they finish school. And you can also get a day job that allows you to continue your practice after work. So basically having two jobs, which is what most of the artists I know do. Of course, those options are not mutually exclusive. I mean, sometimes people do more than one of those things at a time. However, in the past few years, there has been an interesting movement started by young artists eager to work in their field. 
Feeling that there's no room for their professional expression in the established institutions, they take it upon themselves to start the ball rolling. The opening of places such as CK2 and more recently Sun.tw, among other interesting projects, talks about people looking for something that right now simply doesn't exist. We're living the immediacy era. We can get access to everything very, very fast. Shopping, dating, and access to information among many other examples. Perhaps this is an underlying factor in many of the motivations and anxieties of our generation. An interesting piece written by Selen for Canadian Art about these DIY places, as in do-it-yourself, was published recently. Selen points out that what makes this DIY movement unique is the international networking happening between these kind of spaces, enabled by social media. I asked Stephanie to give me the insider perspective about this. Here it is. Well, um, Salen actually interviewed me very briefly for it, and I'm really happy that he wrote this article because there are a lot of really, really interesting project spaces that are happening here. And it's really encouraging to see, um, you know, even if CK2 doesn't have a permanent space now, it's so nice to see that there's this new energy and new impetus to be like, okay, like the systems here aren't really working. Um, mm -hmm. And let's create these, these projects that we will run that will be the product of our own volition and uh, just really amazing stuff is happening and I'm really happy. You're a really young person and I think that it's pretty cool that you have been involved in two openings of like new galleries completely. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit how did that start? Um, so when I graduated from Intermediate Cyber Arts in 2013 <laughs> from Concordia University, um, I did so with um, one of my frequent collaborators, Stephen Korsenstein. And during the last year of our bachelor degree, we were in a collective called Les Beaux Enfants. And one of the projects that we sort of had but never got to was to take over like a storefront window and create a pop-up gallery. Um, sort of on, on this like imagined premise of getting the space for free, but doing the renos. Anyway, it was, it was a bit of a pipe dream, but we were like, okay, well, we've graduated. And uh, there was just this sentiment that there weren't enough spaces for young people to show their work. Right. or work that was exciting and it felt very it just felt like being bogged down like there was no room for growth and mm -hmm. there was like we were in this in between uh, where we had just graduated and we didn't have any shows and that seemed to block us from getting shows so that we could get more it was this vicious circle so we decided that we were going to um try out this project and we spent the summer looking at uh storefronts trying to talk to landlords and stuff like that, right. and uh, none of them bit. And finally, uh, near the end of the summer, we found this spot. We also had two other people join our team. We had Kevin Leung and uh, Nicholas Aligny. And so we opened Lock. And our mandate there was to provide um, inaugural solo shows for Montreal-based artists so that we could give the platform that we felt that we didn't have access to. Let me go back to the practicality of things. Mm -hmm. Like how easy it is to start your own gallery. Not easy. No. <laughs> <laughs> not easy at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, when we first started at Locke, we, you know, none of us had zero prior experience. Like Stephen had experience doing install work at mm -hmm. Eastern Block. I think Kevin had a bit of experience, but that was it. 
We had no idea about the logistics behind it or like how much organization was needed or how much time it would actually require. We didn't even know what an REQ number was. We just had no idea, but we decided to just run at it anyway and had to learn a lot very quickly. Yeah, so that is never taught in university, how to like transfer your knowledge towards something more like commercial. It's not a class I've ever taken. Right, right, of course. <laughs> um, it'd be a very particular course. How to be an artist and then be a curator and then own a gallery. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I mean, more more in the, I don't want to say business because uh, I know that well, that was not. Yeah, it, it, but it is, right? I yeah. mean, in terms of like opening a yeah. commercial place. Yeah. And was that ever I the mean, objective we, like, to sell? I mean. We knew that we weren't going to be an artist-run center, that mm -hmm. we weren't going to incorporate or become a not-for-profit because the paperwork is fucking overwhelming. Like, okay. there was just, there was no way we were going to do that. It wasn't going to happen. And plus, we were already opening, like, a month in advance by the time we decided that we were going to do this. So it just seemed a natural thing to bill ourselves as a commercial gallery instead. Yeah. And it just facilitated things like opening a bank account and getting right. a business number. And, you know, um, we had noble goals, uh, I think, of breaking even in the first year. And our rent was really, really low there. We were on Van Horn, Corner Waverly. Yeah. I mean, low in comparison to CK2 was a little bit more expensive. But, uh, yeah, business, we didn't know anything. I don't know. I think that that made it interesting, right. if not very terrifying, but it was great. And it, you know, it was a really cool experience to have at the age of 21 to be like, look, you can do this. It's Absolutely. not, it's not that intimidating. Like you might not make any money. Yeah. But <laughs> no, but I mean, have the, this but, potential within you. <laughs> but again, the objective is a different one, right? As you said at the beginning, if it's just showing and giving an opportunity to emerging yeah. artists to to show. Well, that was it. And I really liked that space. Uh, it was a really weird, cool shape. It was really wonderful to be able to work with so many artists that were based here and just a really, yeah, really great opportunity. Mm -hmm. Really good first run. Yeah. And do you guys have any mentors or somebody that who was advising you? Nobody. Eh? No. <laughs> That's, that, that. <laughs> it was just us, the blind leading the blind, just right. running downhill. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was wild. The ending of these DIY projects doesn't necessarily mean that it wasn't successful. Most of the times, these projects are planned to be carried out for a specific amount of time. In the case of Stephanie, the closing of Gallery Lock gave her the space to focus in her next interesting project. She told me about that process. Here it is. After working with that team for a total of nine exhibitions, I decided to go my own way. While I was talking about this with my good friend Jess, she was like, well, are you still interested in, in running a gallery? And I was like, yeah, of course. It's just, you know, for whatever reason, this isn't this isn't really jiving. And, you know, this neither here nor there. Nobody was to blame. It was just like a circumstantial thing. Mm -hmm. So she was like, well, let's open a gallery. So we did. And, you know, for me, it was a no-brainer. She is so intelligent and capable and hardworking, and we just seemed like the right match. Yeah. So we opened CK2. At 6560 Esplanade between Bobia and Sazatsik in November 2014. Uh -huh. And uh, yeah, it's been, you know, we had a permanent space for a year. Yeah. And uh, now we're a satellite space. For sure. Yeah. How does that work? 
Um, it seems like the best solution to to the things that we wanted to do and sort of took away the preoccupations that we didn't enjoy, mm-hmm. you know. Um, after a year of having a permanent space, which, again, was really fruitful and, you know, we were able to work with some really incredible artists, install some shows that I'm very proud of and that I am really feel very lucky to have been able to take part in. But uh, pragmatically, we couldn't really continue. And it just so happened, we decided to take a break for a little bit. And then at a certain point, Jess and I, we both had different curatorial projects. She was like, oh, yeah, I think I'm going to organize this show in New York. I could do it alone or I could do it with you. And then it would be fun. And I was like, I have this project that I want to do in Montreal and I could do it alone or I could do it with you. And so it turned into us working together, which was not something that we had decided we were going to end, mm-hmm. but something that we needed to put on hold just for, again, boring, pragmatic reasons, like being burnt out financially and otherwise and just mm-hmm. needing to pull back and focus on our own things. She focused on her writing. I finished up this long-term video installation that I'd been working on for like a year. So we were able to regroup. We did the show in New York, show in Toronto, and a show here with a video show in Montreal in between. There's a lot of work. Yeah, but it's so much easier than running a gallery full time. Yeah, so guess, like in yeah. comparison, it was a breeze. You right, know? Right. It was so nice being yeah. able to work at uh, locations that we hadn't worked with prior to, work with people that we admire, and just awesome, super ideal. By opening a gallery or uh-huh. a couple of galleries, uh-huh. you put yourself in the position of a curator. Yeah. And with that come a bunch of other responsibilities that involve all the running of the gallery and everything. Uh-huh. But also comes with the responsibility of choosing people to have yes. in your shows. Yes. How was that experience? Hard, yeah. uh, but good. You know, it would always be a group effort with Locke and with Jess. It's always a, a really good collaborative effort. You know, there's always basic parameters to work within. Lock, they have to be Montreal-based, they have to have never had a solo show. And then with CK2, it's Montreal, Toronto, New York. But more and more, you know, we have different concerns trying to work towards having a more inclusive platform, which I think is super important and um, something that, you know, we're continually reflecting on and trying to be mindful of. Yeah. Um, artists, they like curating their own shows. Right? Yeah. How's the difference between thinking about curating your, mm-hmm. your own work mm-hmm. and curating somebody else's work? Well, uh, the fact of the matter is I curate other people's work above all. Right now, mm-hmm. you know, running galleries just ended up taking priority in my life over making artwork. And I'm once again trying to switch back into that <laughs> because it's what I really love to do. Mm-hmm. Um Curating your own work is terrifying because that means presenting your own work. But, you know, like the the last projects that I've been working on, um, a a video called La Lanterne that I shot in Paris with my very good friend and collaborator Florence Vallière, we've been going through the process of submitting it to film festivals. Mm -hmm. So that's something that's completely out of our control. And then before that, I presented a, a video installation I mentioned briefly called Ertmas at Salarosa. So yeah. it was an interesting way of presenting it. Um, what was most interesting about that experience is that the video is like 25 minutes long and it, the room was just dead quiet. <laughs> I, and I was so scared about presenting something so long. People, I don't know, either like being really bored and quiet about it or like at the very least being respectful of something that commands so much time. Right. And then I was given this crazy cool opportunity of being able to choose bands to 
play that show, and then it was a benefit for Syrian refugees. It was just, it was really cool. We were we were there. It was That's really nice. cool for sure. Cool. Um, one of the topics of your writing mm -hmm. is the complexities of communication. Yes. How do you get into that? Um, I mean, I guess it's something that seems a little bit self-obvious when you're talking about something like writing that is a form of communication, then dissecting the complexities of communication can seem a little bit like either self-reflexive or, again, kind of too obvious. Um, but I'm really interested in the moments in between or the blips or like when people's lived experiences don't intersect and there is what is commonly known as a communication breakdown. I'm also interested in the possibility of plurality that something like creative writing or combining writing with video can create, of uh, like expressing an existence or an experience that's not linear. Yeah. And so within that, that's like, that's complicating communication into something that's not, you know, from A to B and that maybe sort of vacillates around these points, but it's still just as meaningful. It's just more opaque. I think that that's really interesting. Right. I took a little extract of one of your pieces and I'm going to uh -huh. read it to you. I thought that it was really cool. Okay. Maybe because I understood it in a way and I don't know if that's correct. So okay. a little extract from your piece for the hypocrite reader. Okay. It says... Plural effusion. Uh -huh. And then you continue to say, resources exhausted from pumping out the lifeblood necessary to feed atomescent love. Uh -huh. Because I come from a background of, of science and healthcare. I mean, plural effusion, I know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> and if, if, even though it has nothing to do with that, uh -huh. it makes complete sense. And so. <laughs> It's so I mean, cool to hear. Well, yeah, be because, I mean, like, you know, when you think about that, and it's like, you need to extract that liquid. Mm -hmm. I won't go into what plural diffusion is. But, <laughs> but what I mean is that I understand that also the complexity of communication mm -hmm. is not only towards not understanding each other. But it can be that, but it also can be understanding each other in a different level. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And it's so cool for me to hear, like, your interpretation of that. Then that sort of talks about logical jumps. Uh -huh. Um And part of the reason why I'm interested in the artist statement that I use is the complexities of communication is because I feel very frustrated by this need to express things in this linear, clear matter yes. and to adopt things like this Cartesian or binary mode of thinking. Like, I think that with writing and video, you can use these tools to combat this need to divide and explain. Yeah. And I think it's in the unexplainable or things like that, like that passage that can mean so many things to so many different people, but there's no basic truth to it. Yeah. There's no like essence to it. It can right. mean so many different things. Exactly. And I think that that's cool. Yeah, I, I think so too. <laughs> it permeates into uh, the jargon of different realms, you yeah. know? And so that you can create your own style by using mm -hmm. all these difference of meanings, right? Mm -hmm. And so and in that sense, how do you sort of like define your style of writing? Writing. Mm, I don't think I could. I would just think that I was writing short stories and then I was like, well, maybe it's poetry. And yeah. it's like, who cares? <laughs> you know? Sure. It, <laughs> it like, doesn't really matter. It's like fiction of some sort and it's definitely poetic. And only recently I started trying to use a kind of standard poetic form of dividing things into stanzas and stuff like that. Poor, mm -hmm. I thought that was garbage. I was like, that's so stupid because then I would read it back <laughs> to myself and it felt so practiced and metered. And I, you know, that's just based on how I was taught to read poetry as a sure. kid. That has nothing to do with the form itself yeah. but anyway it's like yeah it's somewhere in between yeah 
I was wondering, you are always in your videos. Uh-huh. I mean, I you know, that started off as like and I and I think you can see that in a lot of people's work as a a solution to to not having the resources to hire anybody. Sure. And then, you know, a lot of my videos just end up being terrain to work something like bad out to use really simple language to address something that can feel really heavy. And I think that's where the idea of complexities of communication can come back in. Um, the video La Lanterne uh, investigates gaslighting on an interpersonal and institutional level. And like gaslighting very briefly is uh, a form of manipulation where one person tries to distort or realign someone else's perception of reality. Uh-huh. And so that was something that was like super relevant to uh, Flo and I on like many different levels, ranging from microaggressions to bad things that have happened either to us or like within the span of our life on an institutional scale. And so being able to perform your way through that can be really beneficial. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, it's easier to tell yourself what you want to see on the camera than somebody else. Sure. And uh, I do, whether I like it or not, on some level, consider myself a performance artist. Yeah. I think I just realized that now. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. We got a premiere. <laughs> um You also jumped to the video production house that you guys were putting together. Yeah. Flo and I started a video production house um, in the spring of this year called Maison Ignis Fatis. And our first production is La Lanterne. Uh, we're working on a production to wrap up by the end of this year called Schwindel. And we're sort of just trying to use this platform to produce our own work and then to go on to produce either our collaborative work, our individual work, and hopefully later on our friend's work to create this space. Because I know that for myself with Locke and with CK2, I never show my work because I, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't comfortable with that idea. And... Um, I don't have anything against it. I think that if you want to do that and that works in the show, that's great, but it never really worked for me. And now with a production house, it can be something like, okay, now we have this platform and then we can like applying to film festivals a lot easier, for example, because you can be like, we're this thing here. And uh, yeah, just going to like try to investigate that in terms of financing and just to give each other the encouragement to keep working on our, yeah. on our projects. Our biases and heuristics, and by heuristics I mean the shortcuts that our brain takes when making judgments and decisions, are most of the time running in cruise control. I mean, not everything needs our undivided attention. However, there are some topics that for the sake of our self-discovery and the evolution of, say, our society, are necessary to consider in a different way. Lately, one of those topics for me has been gender equality. And really, when you find yourself standing in a privileged position facing these issues, it's not really obvious what is the best thing to do. One of the options is to pay attention and listen to the conversations, trying to understand and internalize information perhaps before venturing an opinion. In that very spirit, I asked Stephanie to share with us Her concerns of being a young woman working in the fields of art. Or working anywhere, really. Well, I mean, there's many different ways of looking at it. I'm lucky enough to be surrounded by really incredible, open-minded, inclusive people. I don't feel any kind of oppression on the part of my friends, friends with whom I do a lot of collaborative work. Nevertheless, there's still a lot of frustration. You know, I haven't been privy to it directly, but... 
it's something that more and more is of deep concern to me. I don't know if that was totally clear, but for example, the recent show that CK2 curated is called The Digital Cliff, and it sort of focuses on this idea of emotional labor. The name, The Digital Cliff, comes from something that happens with sound signals. So with analog, they fade out kind of like in a gradual manner, but with digital, they drop off, as in dropping off a cliff. And so I was thinking of this in terms of emotional labor. Emotional labor being something that, for the most part, is carried out by people that are not straight, cis, white men. Right. So people like, for example, a waitress. And at the same time, I don't want to be exclusive in that statement. But that's from my vantage point as a young woman. That is how I perceive emotional labor. So then bringing it back to this idea of the digital and analog signals, I was thinking about the digital cliff as something that like the signal is still there. But because you can't hear it. It's, it's like it doesn't exist. Right. And so this whole idea of emotional labor is something that you can't see, but it's still being carried out. Yeah. And uh, I think I've had to deal with frustrations with that more so in the workforce aside from running galleries than anything else. And I think a big part of my impetus behind opening galleries was so I wouldn't have to deal with that. Yeah. So that I could just do what I had to do or what I wanted to do or the vision that I had in mind and offer the platforms that I want to without having to rationalize my actions time and again and defend them by right of the fact that I am a woman, you know? Yeah, so. yeah. Um, you as an artist, mm-hmm. how important in general and particularly for you is to have social commentary in the pieces, in the art? I think that's hugely important. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a complicated but very good question. I think that um, you need to be aware art is not made in a vacuum, you know, Mm -hmm. and to have that attitude towards it and to think that it can exist outside of its context, like be it social or political or whatever, is just it's vainglorious to assume that your art could be above that and that you don't have some kind of responsibility. And I know that that's been like a growing concern in my work and can be at times paralyzing um, just because, you know, it's like, why do I do this? (laughs) What do I have to say about this? Is what I'm doing like of any merit? What is it going to change? And then, you know, especially the infinite Facebook scroll of dread, many, many headlines have been popping out to me and I've been coaching myself to not read all the articles so I just don't feel horrible all the time Um, but you know this constant reminder that in times like these it's really important for artists to continue producing yeah and to create safe spaces and to be more mindful of people whose struggle is worse than theirs or different than theirs and to open up those dialogues and to not be afraid and to not shy away from things like social commentary and work Yeah, I think that's pretty important. Uh, I remember Ginny Riddle saying something like, um, art is reactive to things that happen in the outside. And I was thinking about that, and I had another sort of like similar-ish question about that, that Mm -hmm. is like, how do you think that the art that you can see around you and like everything that is happening, let's say in Montreal, Uh relates to the actual outside world? And how do you think that it becomes like a bubble? I'm just going to touch back on... um The point of art is reactive. I had the chance to see Genesis Peorge give a talk as part of Pop Montreal a couple months ago. And they were talking about how all art is functional and revelatory. And they said that there's two kinds of art. There's the kind of art that makes things happen. And there's the 
deceptive or decorative art. Mm-hmm. And so you don't need to entrap them in like two different camps, but I think it's important to bear that in mind. Um, as for the Montreal art scene and uh, this this idea of like the the bubble, you know, um, people working in the visual arts, and I and I don't like generalizing, but let's say from my experience here, liberal minded, and then you end up talking to all the same people that are of the same mindset, then you're in an echo chamber, and then when something horrible happens, like Trump being elected <laughs> president. You're shocked, and people that are outside of that echo chamber are like, "I'm not." Yeah, you know. Yeah, and so I think, and yeah. like maybe that's a it's a leap to make between that and social commentary. But I think that there is a growing concern. I spoke to specifically a couple of curators of those newer spaces, and they were just like sort of defeated, and were like, "Why? Like how <laughs> how are you putting? Why are you putting on a show? Why are we doing this?" And I was like. No, I think that it's really important. And then, you know, granted, that was easy to fall back on because with the digital cliff, we had this emphasis on emotional labor because the text was so much so a reflection of the debates. And it's Hillary Clinton's arm in the photo for the the promotional image. So it's like, you know, that was it was like, we're being relevant. But, you know, I don't know. I I do. I do think that there is like a, a growing concern and a growing effort towards it. I think that we can always do better. Yeah. You know, and I think that one of the things about those newer spaces, because they're like aside from something like that is directly a commercial gallery, except for like one or two of them, there's not that concern. And then like art is at least broken away from that and also broken away from those concern. Like so it, it can exist on its own, which can lead to that feeling of a vacuum or can lead to something that would be somewhat more interesting or relevant or like provide more commentary. Right, right. I was talking a little bit about that with Eli, Eli Kerr. And yeah, well, it's it was with Eli that I was talking about that. Oh, he had right. just come back from Chicago. Exactly. And and he, he actually just told me exactly that. He was like, okay, so right now is a moment when we all have to regroup. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that, sure, it's, like, it's a very interesting moment that we all are living as a society of the world. Mm-hmm. But I feel that it's going to be super interesting what is going to come after Mm -hmm. as a reaction from the art world. That's what I'm very interested to see what happens. When I was talking about Genesis Peerage's idea that art is either functional, revelatory, or decorative, I think that that's also, like, so nuanced. Like, you know, art that can come off as decorative can be so crazy subversive and cool, and then art that comes off as social commentary can not be that at all, or like playing on that kind of trope. Agreed, agreed. So. Hey there, Mark's here. I want to take a minute to thank you for listening to the first four episodes of the series. It has been a tough but very rewarding process for everyone in the team of Into This Podcast. We consider ourselves very lucky for being able to produce this content and for the good comments we have received. We are still learning on the go and we hope to bring more interesting conversations and stories for your enjoyment. This is the last episode of the year, but we'll be back in January of 2017 with more conversations about contemporary art and its makers. I also want to ask you for a major favor. We would like to let more people know about the show, and one way of doing this is to get as many reviews on iTunes or wherever you listen to the podcast. So, if you enjoy the show, please consider reviewing it. We will be forever thankful if you decide to do so. Okay, the next segment has proven to be many of our listeners' favorite. So, I just want to say, 
Enjoy. So when you you know you'd ask me about an anecdote, um, anecdotes always make me feel like just the word itself makes me feel very nostalgic and like I need to search for uh, for something I don't know like sentimental or meaningful. Mm-hmm. So instead, I'm just going to read a poem. And it's called Take One. And uh, I'm going to do my best. So it is November that is the cruelest month, particularly the first half. That was the segment during which they, ebb of growth, swell of nostalgia, shot out of the swamp of nothingness and fickle, useless growth, naughty, naughty, into my arms. A nuisance that gains entry like a breath. Breathe in, in, keep at it, bigger inhale, get it all in the, expand, expand, let in this rush of intangible matter, and right when lung tissue feels shredded, en luck, comme une luck, they whispered often, chest cavity utterly depleted, sunken even, whoosh, let it all careen out madly in a heady tumbling rush, then collapse from impact. Fall into yourself from severing ties so completely. The chiming in of the wretched 11 month is a reminder that, despite the catastrophic concave nature of the rupture, there nevertheless remains a surprising, even disheartening, amount of lingering spores. They are hidden in my lungs. They have burrowed homes in the steely dark. They lie dormant till the bells sound. And at this perfect acred hour, the buds bloom into poppies, throbbing with sickly remembrance, forming a crown that tightens with every passing day like an opiate belt until the head is numb and useless from all that narcotic reliving, all that fun confabulatory paraphrenia that with tremendous delirium hands erases all error until it is all represented and preserved as a never-ending wave of love you mercilessly killed on the grounds of nothing. This is not a phase. It is hellish and it is seasonal and it keeps reappearing with pendulum precision. April doesn't have shit on November. Hateful precursor to seclusion and bolts of snow blankets. My long hair won't just twist itself into stubborn knots of warped desire. I must rub my well-anesthetized head against the memorials of our misremembered past and make all static shock leap forth. But as I live my way into the second half of this year's cursed 12, the scissors I had purposefully dulled to map my way through snow hedges and straight to them, I start to sharpen to the tune of a new razor blade. And as I near the death of this dumb month, I slash through infinity loop strands racing towards the same nothingness from which they so cursedly emerged, giving a fresh summer cut to my winter mane. What I have been conditioned to crave is that which I now condemn, and I try to commit this to memory for next year's perversion of past events, this relentless drill of my self-will and preservation. That's it. I ended up having to like sort of live edit, so I'm like, oh, I don't really know about that one. <laughs> it was great. Yeah, it was great for sure. Um, I I want to thank you very thank you. very much for for this, and I really appreciate. Thank you, and thank you here. for giving me this opportunity. It's been really fun. 
This is the end of this episode. I hope you guys have enjoyed it. For more information about Stephanie's projects and links to her work, visit our website, intothispodcast.com. Also, over the holidays, we will be in contact with you via Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Don't forget to check those out. Okay, as a teaser, I'll reveal three of our guests for the new year. We'll have artist Nicholas Grenier. We'll also have artist and self-called host Jerome Nadeau from Soon.tw and curator Loretta Lamargese from Division Gallery. Pretty exciting, isn't it? All this and more coming up in 2017. In the name of the whole team, we want to wish you a very peaceful holiday season and we'll see you soon. We want to especially thank Stephanie Cregan for the opportunity of having this conversation. This episode of Into This Podcast was produced by Raul Aguilar and me, Mark Therese Wilson. Edition by Milton Matthew and me, Mark Therese Wilson. The music is an original creation by Master Gajo and the visual designer is the always fashionable Victor Garibay. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon. Cheers.